There is a built-in blackmail lever to basically silence any sort of political position that they want. These wealthy individuals can pick and choose when they get to exercise that power and when they don't. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy. And you're back to... Oh, you're you're going one name now. So I have uh, waffled on my name selection, and now you (laughs) are just... so. And you come in so strong and hot, too. You're not even, like, questioning. You're like, I'm Troy. So that's what you've Straight decided up. now? You're going to be the one that you're, you're like Prince now? Is that what it is? So so that's what you call me. And if you're not into the whole brevity thing, you know, like yeah, El Troyorino. El Troyorino. And the great thing about Troy is that Troy also has this obviously tremendous historical legacy as well. Uh, so, you know, with like the Trojan, Trojan Wars and things like that. So when you say I am Troy, are you also re- representing a certain historical lineage? I mean, definitely not, but if you want to think that, that's okay, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, pretty much all of my history about Troy comes from the movie with Brad Pitt, so I think it's pretty, you know, it's not a great movie, but, you know, he looks great in the movie, so. Um, it was a good bad. time for me when that movie came out. Yeah, I will admit that. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. I bet it was. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, cool. Well, this week, we I think we talked about it last week, but this week we're going to talk about, uh, I mean, this is totally self-indulgent, an article that I wrote in Jacobin uh, magazine, um, but it's about some some tendencies towards silencing any sort of expression of care or justice for uh, Palestinians in light of the current and ongoing um, activity of uh, military incursion and ethnic cleansing with genocidal intent uh, by Israel. And I wrote an article in Jacobin, and it came out last week, and we'll post it down in the show notes so you can check it out. But uh, of course, as with any sort of piece that you write that has to go through popular publication, there is a pretty strict editorial process, which means that there's a first draft of the article that will never see the light of day. Well, maybe I'll put it up on my academia page. I can do that, can't I? Well, Try? Yeah, can we, can we put it up on the, on the um, website too? Yeah, we'll put it on the website blog. Cool. That's what we'll do. We'll, put, we'll yeah. put both of them up. And I think, yeah, and we'll talk about it when we get into the main segment, but I think there's some interesting differences that were really important to me that just wouldn't meet the muster of like Jacobin's journalistic ethos that had to be cut for their, which totally makes sense, right? Because that's, there's a, there's an approach that they're going for. But um, nevertheless, there's some interesting, maybe like philosophical and conceptual things from that first draft that hopefully we can talk about that, that were actually kind of important to me that, um, that I want to maybe flesh out in other avenues. So this is like the perfect chance to talk about them, you know? So we'll talk about that in the main segment. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading the article, and I'm, I'm glad that um, I actually didn't compare it to the Jacobin one. I just read the one that you sent me. Yeah, so they feel like two separate know. pieces almost. In okay. like, yeah, to to me, like they they literally feel like like I could probably just repackage the first draft and publish it somewhere else in a different way. You know what I mean? And that's what I'll probably do, like academia, and I'll put it up on my Substack, and we'll put it on the blog, but. We're getting ahead of ourselves because that'll be, that'll be the main segment. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, we do want to mention before we start getting into the, the nitty gritty here that if you want to support us on patreon.com, you can do so at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. You can get extra goodies like access to our discord and stuff like that. And we also want to shout out those who have joined the uh, Patreon in the last month. And so uh, Daria, I, that's at least the, the username of the person who's joined. So Daria, thanks so much for joining the parliament uh, and for sending us a nice message too. We appreciate that whenever someone oh, sends us you. nice messages. Do you think that younger millennials and Zoomers have less of a rich life because they never got to see MTV's Daria? Yes. Were you Unless a fan? Oh, you weren't a fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I like, I, like, I like Daria. But I know some people thought it kind of think of it as like a religion. So I'm not quite at that stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, it was definitely, you know how people think of Harry Potter now and they want to live in that world. I think a lot of people, it was their identity for a while. A certain mm-hmm. like like ironic uh, postmodern disaffected youth that literally became <laughs> how they spoke. Their affectation was Daria. How they dressed and how they looked <laughs> was very Daria. It's a pretty good encapsulation of like the Gen X ethos, yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, it wasn't Janine Garofalo, but for some reason, when I think of Daria, I think of Janine Garofalo and all of her characters from like that time period. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, okay. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Daria, and and to everybody else, um, obviously for being patrons and and uh, yeah. We're going to keep going, so uh, if you can, keep throwing us some pennies if you can support us, because it really does help. And we've got a new editor, and I, you know, like to be able to say, hey, baby, here's, I can, we can pay you a little bit of money, um, which is really just, you know, a couple of pennies that, uh, that is a symbolic gesture. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to get, I was going to get sappy for a second, because she listens to this <laughs> as editing it, and I was going to say that she's always my sticky leaves. So I, yeah, oh, I can't. oh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but before we get going and before we, we get too sappy, we got to get into some serious shit now. And it, it's, that means it's time for the sticky leaf or the shitty minute, you know, not the sticky leaves, the shitty minute. Uh, the shitty minute is that segment of the episode where one of us gets to rant and rave and vent and expel all of the expunge, all of the shittiness from our lives for a little while. And uh, this week, it is Troy's turn to let loose. So, Troy, what are you ranting about this week? Yeah, so it's a, an especially um, potent kind of kismet that I wrote down this shitty minute. Um, like, I, I usually write down brief notes about something, like not detailed or anything, uh, in this uh, like Google Keep note um, app that I have whenever I think of like a thing for to, to be a shitty minute or a sticky leaves. And it just so happens that this kind of, I think, fits perfectly with the discussion we're going to have in the main segment. So I don't want to anticipate too much, but I think maybe as a framing device or like or one possible framing device, this might be helpful for segueing into the main segment. When Kissinger died a few weeks ago, um, you know, there was all the, the, the jokes on Twitter and whenever like a, a famously evil or awful person dies, there's lots of, you know, celebration happening on the internet and whatever. Um, and then, you know, you also saw some of the the weird hagiographies coming from like um, both liberals and conservatives, but anybody who's kind of an institutional political figure in America, right? Um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, like what what is Kissinger's legacy going to be? Because there seems to be a bit of a battle over like, do you remember what that that moment when in the um, twenty sixteen primary when um, 
Clint, Hillary Clinton said that, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger was a, gr- a personal friend of hers. And yeah. Bernie kind of had that famous line where he said, I'm proud to say that Henry Kissinger is no friend of mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is like the, the first major American political figure to just outwardly denounce Kissinger. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of a watershed moment, I think, because then it all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but it became much more um, mainstream to just say that Henry Kissinger is representative of everything that's wrong with U.S. foreign policy and is in a uniquely evil figure in, Amer- in like world history. Um, so I was wondering a bit about what Kissinger's legacy is going to be. Um, and that's always going to be like, you know, uh, negotiated in the context of less of what he did when he was alive and when he was, in, you know, in the Nixon administration and stuff like that. And more like when he dies, like what are we thinking now about it, right, in the aftermath? Mm. And I was thinking, you know, it seems to be, this is so apparent now with all the discussions about Israel-Palestine and international politics and stuff like that, that like everything you re- read about Kissinger after he died, the the hagiographic um, stuff, would say stuff like, you know, he believed in realpolitik, right? He was doing mm. real politics. And he was a morally complicated figure is usually what they would say. Um, and what that really meant was he thought moral concerns were abstractions that you had to ignore or disassociate from um, in favor of doing real politics because the moral concerns get in the way of actually getting things done, right? Mm-hmm. It's like ideology, mor- morality is basically ideology. Justice is basically ideology. And if you want to do real politics and get things done, you got to ignore that stuff and just do the real politics. What that actually means in practice, though, of course, is like – killing lots and lots of people and not achieving your goals, <laughs> like helping out the Khmer Rouge, right? Yeah. Um, and stuff like that. And so I was thinking about, you know, what's, what's Kissinger's legacy going to be? And I was thinking, you know, it's got to be something like this tendency of people who say that they're political realists um, to reduce human motivations to and social change and the process of social change to being something so minimal and so mechanistic Mm. that you can sort of move things around on a chessboard as a unique, uniquely powerful, great man, and then get what you want to get done on the international stage. And usually, you know, these, these people, if you like, I think talk to them um, in their heart of hearts uh, would say they want something like world peace or whatever. Right. And what, what they think of as world peace obviously isn't very peaceful. Right. But I don't think they're like, you know, um, sort of self-aware evil figures who want like the destruction of of everything but themselves or whatever, right? They probably do in some sense, like have a desire for something like peace. But they they think of human beings as being such. I mean, I would think of it as as abstractions because, but it's abstractions in the in the sense of like so minimal and so um, deflated of everything that actually makes a human being a human being that you can then sort of move them around on this chessboard, right? Mm. And of course, then never never actually achieving the goals you, you supposedly set out to achieve in the first place. And that and that idea, that cynicism about human beings, I think is at the root of so much that's wrong with politics. And it's it's shared by both major parties in America, right? I mean, just think about the kind of justifications that Biden's been giving of Israel's actions in Gaza, right? He's even straight up admitted, like, yeah, they're not really targeting Hamas are kind of just destroying things willy-nilly. They kind of are doing collective punishment. 
he's basically just admitted that they're doing war crimes, right? In no uncertain yeah. terms. And but then but then immediately re- redoubled and said, but we're going to support them the whole way because this whatever this is has to be done, right? Many many people have to be killed to achieve the goals, right? Of whatever these goals are. And of course, there's like a twin problem with that. One is obviously it's a moral atrocity to just engage in war crimes like collective punishment and killing of civilians and ethnic cleansing and whatnot, right? But it's also, as we learned from Kissinger, not gonna achieve the goals, right? As we've learned also from you know Iraq and Afghanistan, you can't unless you completely eradicate a people, right? You can't kill them into submission, and even if you do. Um, other people are going to take up the charge, right? So this idea that you can sort of kill people and use violence to bring them into submission and that they will, you can sort of defeat a terrorist group by killing all of them. We still haven't really learned yet that you can't do that, that it's not going to work. I think that really goes back to just this deep cynicism about humans and human motivations um, and about individuals' desire to have autonomous living and freedom and control over their lives and communities not to be subjugated to others for no good reason. Hmm. I think the the bit about abstraction is so important to me because it I think I think functionally one of the ways that abstraction operates is by bringing everything that everything that that you're able to abstract uh, to the surface that makes it manageable. Right, so you kind of like create little bits or little concepts or little domains that then can be used instrumentally, and um, otherwise, you know, um, if you don't do that, then things become unwieldy and unruly, and that's precisely what you're seeing, right, with the the kind of current uptick in in violence in in that region is that it's kind of like oh, it's the return of the repressed. It's precisely the thing that you thought had been kind of rule decide. I mean, that's why Israel kind of sent a bunch of military, uh, you know, people over into the West Bank because they were like, oh, Gaza, you know, it's not a, it's not an issue anymore. You know, we kind of got it. We're going to be okay. Or at least by some reports, that's what, that's what it seems like people were thinking within Israel. And they weren't, they weren't really thinking that, that this kind of thing would ever happen. And they kind of thought that maybe Mm. we were in a new chapter with regards to the, 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 um, relations between the two um people groups and um and so you know you get like this the unwieldy and the unruly and that's beyond your ability to abstract and it just makes me think that there's something about like the whole realpolitik or or realism within international political theory that it has to operate by abstraction because one it's just got like a completely faulty conception of of like the unconscious or of like hidden dimensions or it, it doesn't really have any conception of the universal in any sort of true robust sense. It can only have a conception of like the international order as seen from whatever perspective, right? And and it can only do so because it can only deal at that level of the surface. It can only deal, which is why I think, you know, like deconstructive narratives are important which is why like critical political economy is important and i think that there are a variety of ways to get at figuring out how you can sort of demystify the abstractions that uh that a lot of these surface-based popular political actors how they take up the world and i think that's just so crucial for any sort of critical political project or for any sort of liberatory political project is attesting to that which is not 
always already enclosed by the processes of abstraction within the hands of those who are able to, because of capital power and political power, instrumentalize, you know, the bits or the units that they've abstracted for their own ends. And um, there's something about that that I think is, is just really kind of important to, to understand. Bertel Ullman refers to it as violent abstraction, the activity of violent abstraction. Not that abstraction per se is bad, um, because there's a sense in which abstraction is sort of part and parcel. He's a Hegelian, so it's part and parcel of the dialectical process for him, right? But there's something important mm-hmm. maybe, or there's something there's something maybe contingently necessary about the activity of, of abstraction per se. But violent abstraction is where you simply like kind of cut the limbs off of things and you say, this is this and it can be no other, right? And that's, that's what I think realpolitik does. That's what realism you know, kind of following Machiavelli, like John Mearsheimer and stuff like that. That's kind of their approach is it's, it's things are what they are because of how they are determined by looking at it from this perspective. And that perspective is, of course, you know, some sort of hegemonic Western, you know, you know, a, a unipolar, like, you know, American imperial perspective or something like that. And I think that's, that's that activity of violent abstraction because it cannot understand that there is something more than then, um, because as soon as you start admitting the more than, as soon as you start admitting that there's excess, your entire framework is contested, you know? And the only thing you can do is either silence it, repress it, cut it off, kill it, delegitimate it, or convert it so that it works for the already pre-existing system of abstraction. Yeah, I mean, in, in the words of the dude, like, who's the fucking dogmatist here, man, right? <laughs> like, the, the realists... The political realists think of themselves right. as realists in in contradiction or um, against in opposition to uh, dogmatists, um, like, like moral dogmatists, right, at the international level. And of course, I mean, it seems to me like they're the real dogmatists because anytime explosions of um, reaction to illegitimate political authority occur, the the empiricists, the empirical realists, right, say. Well, that's that's sort of you know has to be stamped out because it's not it's not justified. The 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 order is the thing that's ju- the sort of concrete existing um, juridical political order is the thing that that matters. When I think if you that's I think a, a like straight up dogmatist response to uh, excess or contradiction or um, you know or anomaly or whatever you want to call it, right? Actually, eruptions of uh, claims of illegitimacy seem to me to be the kind of thing you should. Think about changing the order of, like, and that's, that's right. you know, um, that seems to me to be a much more realistic in the mm. sense of like the spirit of realism, which is like, okay, new evidence, like change, change your, change your beliefs, right? Mm, uh, yeah. And it's funny that people who consider themselves in the line of like empir- in the li- like the lineage of empiricists, don't do that. But then that goes back to the fact that like there's this, there's, I mean, even just at the philosophical level, there's this total misunderstanding about whether or not empiricists are realists, right? Mm-hmm. The empiricists are the dogmatists. Think about who all the great scientists of the scientific revolution, Copernicus, and Galileo, and Descartes, right? Rationalists, all of them. Who are the empiricists? Hobbes, not a scientist. Hume, fucking historian, right? <laughs> yeah, Locke, um, yeah. Yeah, so... This whole way that like philosophy, history of philosophy is taught, where you have like the empir- empirical realists on one end and the dogmatic rationalists on the other, just completely upside down. Mm. I think not that not that you know the rationalists therefore had everything right, but just that the history of philosophy is that's taught that way is done for, for ideological reasons. It's trying to justify this kind of view 
of, uh, of, of the human being and of thinking and of morality in the political order. I think it's all that like, comes in one package. Mm, that's really so if you're out there and you had a philosophy 101 teacher who told you that the, the like mainstream currents in philosophy, European philosophy was dogmatic rationalists versus empirical realists, give them a call, write them an email and said a guy in a podcast told them that that was wrong. I mean, but even Kant kind of bought that line, right? Because the whole point was that Hume and Hume's empiricism woke him from his dogmatic slumber. So there is this sense in which that that even kind of um, within that very sort of philosophical tradition that it was kind of interpreted that way, you know, pretty early on. Yeah, I mean, everything that's wrong with Kant is, be- is when he gives too much credence to Hume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 a little. There's a little pithy little line that I often play in my own mind over and over again, and it's that um, like metaphysical ignorance leads to epistemological arrogance, and it's this idea if you're not aware of your first principles, or if you claim that you don't have them, so maybe it's even cynical metaphysics, metaphysical cynicism. What it does is it just reinforces your capacity to self-legitimate and self-justify, and you become a dogmatist. You become epistemologically arrogant. You know what yep. you know. You know you 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 have you have the the stranglehold over what's right and what's not right because you know. Um, but really, you're just being metaphysically ignorant because you're not actually or dishonest, even worse, right? It's 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 somewhere between those two, maybe, of ignorance and and absolute kind of just dishonesty. But uh, that's what you see with like the whole realpolitik whole shtick it's it's cover it's 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 cover to justify your view of might makes right is really what it comes down to a lot of times so and might makes right according to you know usually some sort of very limited framework of what the universal is which now we're going back to prozorov right and that idea of like the imperfect universal or uh what is did he call it imperfect nihilism he doesn't right but it uh the kind of like the false universal the idea that you -hmm. take like a small regional narrative and you inflate it to the status of a true universal but it's really not it's just some sort of small regional narrative that benefits a minority group you know and you project it outward which like there's nothing realist about that and, and that's what's very strange. And then here's here's the reason why this is why the kind of like claim towards realism is actually a very sort of clever rhetorical political strategy is that once you do that, once you set the rules of the game, then you can sort of police the boundaries of, of what's included and what's excluded. It's a very religious sort of activity, thinking about like Dan Barber's work that we covered on this podcast, if people are interested. Yeah. But uh, you could go back and check that out. But how it is that religion draws the bounds between you know, uh, what right belief and what wrong belief is, the in-crowd versus the out-crowd. And it is this activity of of creating inclusion and exclusion by clearly demarcating the lines of what, what is right belief versus what is wrong belief. And that's why the claims towards realism are so potent politically and rhetorically is because they can not only say that this is what's right and this is like the obvious realist approach, you dumb fucking idiot, you idealist, you utopian, fanciful moron. We got to be real about things. <laughs> but then what they can do is they can just sort of anything that in any way sort of breaches the boundaries that they've established is literally nonsensical. Like, like not only does it become like a, 
it's not like some sort of like marketplace of ideas where it's like, ooh, well, we've got our realist approach and you've got your socialist approach or your critical approach. And we see there, no, there's no validity. Like it's literally nonsensical. It's like you're just a fucking barbarian or you're some sort of Stalinist defender, right? And that's what they have to go to, shit like that, right? Like anything that like might contest it, it's like they automatically are like, oh, what are you, a fucking Venezuelan supporter? Or, oh, what are you, a fucking Stalinist? Or, oh, what are you, a fucking, you know, uh, Chinese, you know, like the, what, do you want to bring back the Cultural Revolution? You know, and it's always like some sort, you want to eat rats and shit? You know, it's like always they go to some sort of rhetorical extreme because it's literally they can do that because it's it, it just becomes so nonsensical from within that realist paradigm. And this is, I think, a nice segue into the, the main segment we're talking about your article here, because that activity of policing boundaries is typically what rhetorically is um, sort of used and utilized when legitimacy has been questioned of the dominant order, right? Like, you don't have to do the policing mm. when people do it themselves, but you do have to do it when all of a sudden the screams of, you know, authority is illegitimate are coming from all corners, which they are on on this specific issue, right? And so you're mm. seeing a lot of that from politicians, people you know online. Um, there isn't really an argument to be made that what Israel is doing is justified. There isn't one to make, right? Uh, other than just bold yeah. lying, right? Um, so you instead see policing of, of language and policing of boundaries of what can, what's sayable and things like that instead, since there's really no other place to go. So it's a, a good sign that an order is being sort of cast as illegitimate um, in the, you know, quote unquote public square or whatever, when those types of things come to the surface in a way that they're usually sort of, you know, the unsaid. Yeah, it's when when my editor, Daniel Lopez, um, were talking about this piece, that was one of the things that struck him so much was that, like, why is it like, what is going on? with this concerted effort by elites it, the article you know focuses on australia but it's obviously attached to this larger larger you know trend uh, internationally but um it was kind of like why like w- what is justifying the silencing of pro palestinian support and for him he was like it's like that they can't in any way explicitly justify what israel's doing and they know that so they have to just resort to silencing opposition and making it so that it doesn't even have a voice, right? And I found that to be so interesting. And, and, I, and I've, I've thought long and hard, and I still don't know that I've, like, cracked the nut on this. But, but do, let's, I, I mean, I think the fucking pro-Palestine, pro-Israel boundaries are a little bit forced, but, you know, let's, let's roll with them, right? So let's say if you're, you're some sort of, like, supporter of Israel, maybe unwaveringly supportive of Israel in whatever it's doing in the Middle East, right? Um, just historically, let's say, for, for decades, let's say, not only now, but let, let's say historically. Like now, you, you, you clearly see that, unless you're just a total denialist, you clearly see that shitloads of children and civilians have been targeted. Like not just even accident, like, you can't even just be like, oh, you know, it's the, you know, consequences of war, you know, things happen in the fog of war, blah, blah, blah. At this point, you're kind of like, you gotta they're be just like, saying no, it. Some... <laughs> yeah, they're saying it, right? are just saying it. Like, there's I documented mean, Netanyahu has come... evidence. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, like total genocidal intent. Netanyahu has come out recently and been like, yeah, I've been blocking the two-state solution for 30 years. You guys have been me accusing me of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm fucking proud of it. You know, it's like, you've got that. Then you've got like uh, the minister of justice who's like, yeah, we're basically going to um, create education internment camps in Gaza. Uh, then now you've got like just uh, um, the the former representative to the UN that puts out this five-step plan for like, expelling uh, Gazans out of Gaza, uh, like um, creating some sort of like permanent economic zone in Gaza. Like there's clearly an intent of like ethnic cleansing of some sort of removal of the peoples, right? So there's there's obviously like no, there's explicitly no concern over self-determination or, or the well-being, let's say, of Palestinian peoples more broadly, um, not just Gaza, right? And so um, the question is, is like the, the outsiders, like the international community who are typically supportive of Israel, like they have to look at that and they have to know that, okay, what they're doing is shitty, is immoral, right? What they're doing cannot be justified from the perspective of international law. It cannot be justified from the perspective of like viewing the sanctity of life. Right, there's no way to do it. So what they have to do is they have to retreat to some sort of dogmatic position, right, or something. And that to me is like, like, like what is going on there in that that tension? That seems like a really potent point of tension to try to examine. And that's that's what my editor was like. That was like when when I first pitched him this this article. That's what he was like. Fuck, so interesting. What's going on there? And I was like, yeah, okay, what is going on there? And I don't know. What do you think, Troy? Yeah, I mean. Maybe we should transition here into the main segment officially, formally. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and maybe yeah. you can give some background on what's happening in Australia for those who maybe haven't read the article yet. And then we can get into some of this uh, diagnostic territory. Yeah, perfect. Okay, cool. So the article, um, it's in Jacobin. It's called Australia's Elites are Censoring Criticism of Israel by Calling It Anti-Semitic. And I'll just read um, just like the tiny little blurb here real quick so you can get a, a vibe of, of what my argument is. But in Australia, the political media and arts establishment is weaponizing accusations of anti-Semitism to silence critics of Israel's war on Gaza. It's tantamount to blackmail, and the goal is to delegitimize solidarity with Palestine. So the background of the article, for me, what really triggered my inspiration, so to speak, was that there's a theater company in Sydney that's called Sydney Theater Company. And it is one of the most prestigious theater companies in the entire world. Like Kate Blanchett is um, heavily involved. I think her husband like runs it or something. Um, but she's heavily involved with it. I, I know she's been a board member in the past. She's been really involved with it. But Hugo Weaving's on the board. Mia Wasikowska's on the board. Tim Minchin's on the board. Right, so a lot of like really powerful um, celebrities within Australian culture are currently involved, and then historically, I, the list is endless of like the Australians who are involved in the entertainment industry who have been involved with Sydney Theatre Company. It's an extremely, well, extremely well-funded, extremely. Um, uh, I don't want to keep saying the word prestigious, but it's um, it's meant to be of extreme high quality in terms of of uh, it's like the Broadway, it's like the Broadway, let's say, of um, of Australia, right? It's at that level, and um, uh, and then of course beyond just the celebrities that are involved with it, 
some very powerful captains of industry, um, you know, very powerful business people who are the, the elites in Australia are on the board or run the fundraising um, with the STC Foundation for Sydney Theatre Company. And they were, their new flagship show, um, that it, 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 the run ended now, I believe, but um, it was Chekhov's The Seagull, and it was like an updated contemporary, like build as like a gutsy new contemporary version of, of Chekhov's The Seagull. And on opening night, three of the actors, they wore keffiyehs in um, a, a very silent um, show of support for Palestinian justice. Uh, they basically were gifted these keffiyehs from another STC-affiliated Palestinian artist named Violette, who's doing another show, actually, at STC. They have multiple theaters. She was not on the main stage. She's in what's called the Wharf Theater, which is a smaller theater just uh, across the road. And um, and basically, the, the actors who ended up wearing the keffiyehs, they wanted to create some sort of joint statement. Sydney Theater Company said no. Then they were talking with Violette and... They were like, we want to do something, and Violet was, well, you know, if you want to show a sign of solidarity, you can wear keffiyehs, and so she gave them the keffiyehs to wear, and so they wore them during the ovation during opening night of The Seagull, which was the main stage production, right? Um, and a picture got taken during the ovation, and it went up online, and then, of course, it went viral, as things do, and basically a bunch of, like, pro-Israel donors and patrons and subscribers flooded the box office and started like demanding um, refunds and pulling their subscriptions and threatening to pull their donations. And Sydney Theater Company, you know, I mean, live theater in general got decimated because of COVID, obviously. So Sydney Theater Company um, notably took like $23 million in grants from the government during that time period to keep themselves afloat, to, you know, protect from insolvency. And then, um, and then also they kind of have a continuing stream of, of ongoing public support that they do get from the government. But also they get about 30% of their um, funding, of their donations. They're a nonprofit, a not-for-profit. Uh, they get like 30% of their money, nearly 30%, from private donations, from philanthropists. And so, um, you know, the people who were threatening to pull their donations— it, we ended up finding out we're actually very powerful donors. And two of the board members retired. Uh, retired. They stepped down, I should say. They resigned from the board, um, Judy Hausman and Andy Schumann. And they are two very powerful um, business people here in Sydney, very wealthy, powerful business people here in Sydney. And they um, stepped off of the board and then also from the STC Foundation, which is the number one sort of funding body for Sydney Theatre Company that continues to manage all of these private donations and then that continues their activities for receiving support from the government as well. And um, I mean, essentially, if they didn't, if STC didn't receive the funding from the government and from donations, they would be entirely insolvent, right? Like they, they posted their first surplus in five years this year, this past year, because of a couple of really big shows. They did, they did this show um, on Ruth Bader Ginsburg called RBG that was like really popular and got, they're actually bringing it back because it was so popular and it's like sold out run and all this stuff and a couple other big shows. 
and um, and it was like a really big year. Their first their first year that they've had a surplus in five years, and the surplus was only forty four thousand dollars <laughs> and um, Australian. And and then of course, if you take away the government funding and the private donations, they would have actually had like a thirteen point eight seven million dollar deficit. So it's like they are they are basically entirely dependent, and they know this in their end of the year financial reports. The board are like, we got to make sure that this stream of revenue continues, and so they are basically oriented to ensure that they continue receiving not only government support but private donations. So once these these floods of calls started bombarding the box office and then the, the donor and philanthropy teams, of course there was a lot of pressure put on STC to make sure that they appeased the, the angry crowd. So they issued an apology. Um, the two board members stepped down. They issued a public apology. They basically censured the actors, told them to keep their politics off stage for the rest of the run. And uh, kicked up a big shitstorm in the media because uh, you've got, you know, like one side that is supportive of the artist's right to free expression, to have an opinion, to be able to express that in their art. Um, and then you've got the other side that is basically trying to claim that any that, that they were just being anti-Semitic and it's hate speech and we need to make sure we protect the Jewish community in Australia from any sort of assault on, on, on that, right? And so it kicked up this big shitstorm. And um, it never really got resolved. I mean, I guess the way that it got resolved was that the actors were told that they couldn't continue to show any sort of um, political solidarity on stage for the remainder of the show. Um, and and really, I mean, in a way to think, if you want to think about it in terms of wins and losses, it's like the donors won. Um, I imagine that Sydney Theatre Company probably lost a fair amount of money but I think that they'll probably be able to get it back because I guarantee you they're going to be doing lots of groveling and lots of um, lots of heavy activity uh, in in patronage to make sure that they kind of get back the the people that were lost or that they get new people because they can show hey um, we we took care of it you know um, I would imagine they're going to continue to do that um, so that's kind of what ended up happening and so the article kind of just talks about. How this is part of a larger trend of how it is that there is a sort of built-in blackmail lever that the elites of Australia and elsewhere in the world have built in that they can trip at any moment, that they can trigger at any moment to basically silence any sort of political position that they want because they pull the strings, they pull the purse strings. And um, yeah, that's kind of the, the basic gist of, of the article as it was published, I think, unless I'm missing something in my own piece, Troy. No, that, that seems right. Um, there's so much to, yeah. to talk about here. I guess one thing I wanted to talk about first is this blackmail idea, right? That yeah. it seems apparent. Obviously, I didn't know anything about the Sydney Theatre Company or any of that uh, other than things you told me before um, in reading the article. And it seems like what's really interesting about how this whole thing functions is that none of it would be possible if not for the fact that City Theatre Company is entirely is largely dependent upon private giving from wealthy philanthropists, right? Yeah. And that in a system where that wasn't the case, then there wouldn't be this blackmail lever to pull, right? So mm. it's a, it's a very imbalance of power and economic inequality that you know creates the conditions for that to exist that makes it so that individuals can basically pick and choose these wealthy individuals can pick and choose when they get to exercise that power and when they don't because obviously i mean I, I don't know the details but you can imagine in a different context that was much more amenable 
um, actors could make a political statement on stage of a, a different character that's just that's you know formally the same, and no one would do anything. Yes, it's not it's not a principled stance against keeping your politics off stage. A very like shut up and dribble kind of. That's a right. If they if they were yeah. like pro Ukraine or something like that, the people wouldn't have said anything. Yeah, they wouldn't have had any principled stance against having politics on stage. It's this specific politics on stage that's the problem. That's right. right. Well, I'm just wondering then is is like are the people in the city city theater community talking at all about hey this is the problem like we need to not be dependent upon you know mega millionaires because they can blackmail us and control what we our speech and that seems like a major problem for an arts community right yes yeah so this is this is great because um, in the first draft of the article and in in the in the published article as well I talk about how there are some economic political economic machinery that, that that that's happening behind the scenes as well right and so like i think one of the things that's really enlightening is to think about how it is that the arts community especially the like high quality production arts community how it is really sort of a um how it traffics in bourgeois culture right for like a lot of middle class and upper middle class elites and that that is a problem because like you could have gone to a theater where I've performed in Sydney let's say Flight Path Theater which is a great little indie theater in Merrickville which is kind of like um, a real progressive part of town and you would have you would have seen artists guaranteed artists showing signs of solidarity with Palestine without you know the Flight Path Theater coming down on the performers and being like, hey, you're not allowed to do that for the rest of your run sort of thing, right? Guaranteed. And I guarantee you, um, you know, well, a lot of like the arts union here, it's called the MEAA, they have come out with a sign of solidarity with artists and their right to protest. And um, I signed a a petition that was published in Overland Journal that was, um, you know, Creatives for Palestine that was about that was in backlash in response to this, as well as another artist, actually, an artist, I can't remember his name right now, um, Par or Bar. He, he basically had a residency for like 36 years in an art gallery. I think it was the Ann Schwartz Gallery. And he made a piece in which he just, you know, wrote the words Israel and um, apartheid. And the 36-year partnership was dissolved because of that, right? And so there's there's been more than one instance of it, the STC one being the kind of most, most notable. But... Um, you know, there's so there's definitely been a sort of like a, ral- a rallying from from pro-Palestinian artists in response to this, but it's it's that certain institutions, it's 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 not the like indie institutions, it's these like establishment institutions, it's these ones, and here's here's part of the problem, it's it's these ones that garner the most attention that attract the most funding, that can put on the quote-unquote best quality shows, whether or not that's true is up for debate, right? But it can put on the best, the highest production quality shows. And then here's here's one of the big issues, is then it serves as not only a great presenter of like bourgeois art for the Australian community, but it also for artists is like a gatekeeping mechanism because if you're a theater actor or if you're just an actor, one of your dreams growing up in Sydney is to be able to perform on the stage where all of your fucking heroes have performed, right? And it's Mm -hmm. not like, it's not a stepping stone necessarily. It is in some ways. But like I saw a play with Hugo Weaving there two years ago. So like the elite actors are still performing there, 
right? So it is like this 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 really important gatekeeping institution within the arts community more broadly in Australia. And I think there's something really important that in understanding about that because of the power it exerts. Because here's the thing. So I happen to know one of the actors that was protesting um, on op- in The Seagull, right? Um, my partner was in a show with her. And, um, and so Mabel is her name, Mabel Lee. And she's a tremendous actor. And um, she, so, so she's, she's kind of like, um, she's not famous, but she's like, you know, she's on, her star is on the rise, let's say, right? And, um, uh, and then also one of the other actors who did it uh, is actually Hugo Weaving's son, who, you know, Hugo Weaving is on the board. And I guess he, as far as I know, he's remained pretty quiet about uh, Hugo Weaving's Hugo Weaving has remained pretty quiet about it. His son has been pretty outspoken um, <laughs> and like de- defending why they did what they did on his Instagram and all this other stuff. Like, no, we're going to keep fucking doing it, you know. But um, uh, I guess the point is, is that what you have is you have this this kind of like this institution that is is offering people an opportunity, not only as consumers to come see something, but also artists to be able to do their art professionally and then if you somehow step across the line, they will censure you and silence you and use fear so that you know as an artist that there are limits for how you can and how you can't express yourself. And then, and then what that does is that creates a culture of fear within the arts community because you're like, well, wait a second. If the institutions that hold our very livelihood in their hands can, can silence us at an instant, then that really puts us in a precarious position. And that to me is actually really dangerous because then you have an artist community that could be, thankfully, so many within the artist community were like, no, fuck you, we're going to actually stand together. But what it could do is it could create a sense of fear that makes you hesitate from the artistic impulse in the first instance. Because then you're like, well, wait a second, all I want to do is be an actor or all I want to do is be a writer or all I want to do is be a stage manager, costume designer, whatever. But I know that if I step out of line then the institutions are going to take my opportunity away from me. And so I think that's also something that needs to be understood about these elite art institutions. And then go back to that other guy, that artist, who had a 36-year arrangement. And, and if, you're a, if you're an artist who like, needs an exhibition space, you might look at that and be like, well, fuck, well, I'm never going to be able to... i got to be careful. I've got to hesitate before I follow the artistic impulse that, that feels like it's bubbling up from within me. And I think that's just a really kind of interesting matrix and, and scary matrix to try to understand the, the combination of those pressures of like, you know, the power of bourgeois art uh, institutions to be able to not only offer something as a consumptive, uh, as a consumptive piece for, for audiences, but then how they can use that to kind of like serve it in their gatekeeping processes as well. And I think the important thing, I really appreciated that you made this super clear in the article, it's the version that I read at least, um, is that you know, the, the uproar here was not coming from the popular uh, will, but you said it's, it's coming from the captains of industry who have disproportionate power over what happens That's in right. these communities, right? We often talk about how democracy is so important at the political level and that wealth is uh, like erodes uh, democratic legitimacy and democratic freedom and power amongst all peoples, right? Sort of co-constitution, democracy thought of as co-constitution of uh, political life, right? And that's certainly true. 
But I think what's really important here is that we're seeing these exact same mechanisms happen in the private sphere. It happens in arts communities. It happens in educational institutions. It happens in philanthropic institutions. When people have disproportionate wealth and they use that in ways uh, in the sort of private sphere to prop up certain kinds of uh, cultural uh, and philanthropic institutions and educational institutions, we often think of that as being like, what's good about capitalism, right? It's supposed to be the good thing about capitalism is that it creates this vast wealth which then people can then give away. But of course they do mm-hmm. so, these captains of industry, by um, by leveraging their power to get what they want done and then silencing those who disagree with them, right? And that if democracy is important in the public sphere, I think it's just as important in the private sphere. It's important about the conditions of how where you work. It's important for the conditions of how you express yourself in cultural institutions. It's important everywhere. It's important in the family, right? Um, and vast wealth and vast economic inequality erodes freedom and democracy and co-constitution of life in every sphere in which it exists. And this is such a potent example of it happening in a cultural institution where largely I would imagine almost nobody in their day-to-day life, you know, normies, think about how, you know, people who are engaged in the arts are sort of lacking in freedom. It seems like the most free institution there is, the arts community, right? You're mm. creating art with other people who love art. It seems like like what whatever could be more free than that. And yet here we're seeing the exact same mechanisms which erode democracy at the public level in governmental institutions have the exact same kind of functioning in cultural institutions and they exercise it when Mm. they feel the need to, right? Yeah, and that's, to me, as an artist, that's one of the things that actually makes me concerned about how these elite cultural institutions, how they have accumulated not only the financial resources, but they've accumulated a certain type of cultural resources and that they then are able to use the financial resources to create the boundaries around what's possible in the cultural sphere as well. So it's hiring the people that are good deputies and making sure that the content that's produced is safe and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And and in my first draft of the article, one of the things I spent a little bit more time elaborating was, um, which is what we'll, we'll put it on the, the OAD blog as well, um, um, was that there's like a sense in which Sydney Theatre Company, it it claims, it it wants to both have this, 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 it wants to uphold its status as being like a really important and valuable artistic, theatrical theatre company. And at the same time, it wants to um, be prestigious and, and kind of like, um, in the upper echelon of um, of the the cultural the Australian cultural world, and there's a there's a distinction there because a lot of times, in order to be rich artistically, you have to flout political economic convention, right? Like you can't just simply be mm-hmm. a toady for the elites. Like so much art has to be transgressive. So what this institution has proven in this activity is that it actually it's it's its supposed desire for artistic integrity which it tries to claim right in its outspoken like even in its public apology it tries to like talk out of both sides of its mouth you know that it's really concerned about complex ideas and things like that but it's not clearly because any of the ideas are ultimately subsumed under the kind of primary concern which is 
preserving a certain bourgeois, upper-middle-class bourgeois conception of cultural expression. And that, to me, is really shitty. Because I don't want to overstate this, but it makes me feel like, well, then what they simply have proven is that they're just a, a trafficker of bourgeois culture. They're not actually an artistic entity. And that's a, that's a different... That's a completely different thing, right? It's a, yeah, it's a failure of the function of an artistic community at that point. Like you have this line that I really loved. It's my favorite part of the article where you say that the STC apology claimed that, there, that theater is a place for exploring ideas with complexity and context. And as soon as they enforced the mandate imposed by institutional elites in the name of their duty of care, they revealed their primary concern is not, in fact, exploring ideas with complexity. Their real duty of care is to preserve the flow of high-level support by nurturing the feelings of government funders, donors, and influential board members, right? That's like right on the nose, right? What is the way in which this artistic community is functioning, right? If it, it says it's to explore ideas with complexity and context, that sounds like the kind of thing an artistic community should say and should function as right, yeah. but really, what they're what the um, the apology and the mandate uh, exposes or manifests is that the duty of care, or the way this is actually functioning, is to nurture the feelings of the donors, <laughs> which is manifestly not what an artistic community should be about. Obviously, and no one would think that it is right. But the way that the institution functions and the way it's governed makes it function that way, right? Um, and that seems mm. so apparent. Like you mentioned earlier, that one of the um, can't remember who it was. One of the individuals who maybe stepped down from the board of governors. Um, let's see. It was Daniel uh, Grinberg. Um, oh yeah, no, he's, he's he's yeah, he was um, he's another just influential. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, he, he's he's a director the, for um, yeah. Go ahead. The Sydney Jewish Museum. Yeah. Yeah. So he he mentioned that the reason he wrote this viral open letter about the about the situation is that the STC ignored Israeli suffering and did precisely nothing to make Jews feel supported, right? Interesting mm-hmm. there that, I mean, that's just one quote, so I don't want to like take it completely out of context, but you see this everywhere in regards to the Israel-Palestine situation, right? Where it's not that anything factual has been said that's incorrect. Like there is ethnic cleansing going on and there is you know destruction and targeting of civilians and whatnot, right? Like we're not even going to talk about that. It's that there wasn't proportional representation of suffering in the act. Yeah. Like you, you didn't say, oh, also Hamas is bad and a bunch of Israelis were unjustifiably killed, right? Which of course is true, but it's like the the problem with the statement is that it didn't both sides enough, right? Which again mm. is about nurt- it's about nurturing feelings. It's about making people feel supported, right? Or something as if that's the point is to make people feel okay, right? Um, to play yeah. like, you know, the, the maternal role of making sure everybody gets along or something like that. Yeah. Which like, fucking grow up, dude. Also, and this is, I didn't get to express, express this as much in the, the final draft of the article, but in the first draft of the article, that's not what the whole point of theater is. And I don't even think <laughs> that audiences go, I don't even think that audiences go to the theater to have their feelings nurtured. And if you do, then stop fucking going to the theater. And that's why... Go There's watch the Pixar YA effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say the YAification of everything is so that everybody's feelings can be nurtured all the time. And that's why everyone's complaining about the quality of the content. And I bet you some of these people 
are people who would complain about the quality of the content that's coming out because <laughs> it is. It's like reducing everything to a common denominator. But the point is, is you want to be shocked. You want to be transgressed. You you venture to the theater like as an adventure so that you can throw yourself at the feet of these people who are artists because you're not an artist. Or if you are an artist, they're going to present their art in a different way to you. Or if you have an artistic sensibility, they're going to do it in a different medium than the way that you express your art. The point is, is you submit yourself to the inspiration of these creatives who are given license, right, to create products and to put fresh glosses on Chekhov, which is what this very play is too, which is I think also important, STC tries to like feign at its um, its efforts in this direction by saying that this is like a gutsy new contemporary version of the show, but it's not if you're just simply going to create it as some sort of like safe production where nothing can seep out of it because live performance is inherently dangerous because you have these people in real time that are producing content that is necessarily outside the bounds of like the limits of what what like you would read on a page or of of something that is like neatly and nicely manicured or curated that's 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 what i think a real rich conception of live theater would be which then makes me disappointed because then it just makes me think that stc doesn't actually care about live theater in the way that it thinks it does but it wants to just traffic in bourgeois culture it wants to continue the stream of conspicuous consumption right for people who can say that they're season ticket holders, or for people who can claim at their barbecues on Saturday that they're subscribers and donors, or for people who can flush out their um, their asset portfolios and uh, you know talk about how they're on the board or something like that. Like if that's what STC is reduced to, then it completely betrays the mission of trying to explore ideas and complexity. Yeah, dude. I mean. Mini sticky leaves here. I just watched uh, May December last night. New, Todd Haynes' new film. Oh, I really want to see it. it. Yeah. No, oh, I really want so, to. It's so so good, dude. You're gonna love it. And what I appreciated so much about the film is that it explored these moral gray areas, and it's like it's it's a machine of interpretation in Umberto Eco's phrase because it's about interpersonal morality. It's about uh, artistic creation. It's about how artistic creation is like combined with interpersonal morality and when uh, acting can be um, too close to its sort of immoral center. And yet we find moral gray areas interesting for good reasons and we want to explore them, but then that can, that can also infect us in ways that we don't foresee. It's, oh, it's about so many, it's about so many things in, hmm. that I love and that I know you love. I'll just talk about it with you um, once you watch it. But anyway, the, the point is being like, you know who doesn't think about um, that feelings are the important center of everything, like the artists. Like maybe, you know, board of directors or whatever at a theater company think that, and donors maybe think that, right? Like they only think about as an audience, like I just want to feel good and I want to feel supported and represented or whatever, right? But the artists don't, because no one gets into art for that reason. Right? They get into mm. art because it makes people uncomfortable in good ways. Like they want to be stoked mm. to thought. They want to be stoked to feeling sometimes bad. Well, and it makes you feel uncomfortable in interesting ways. Like as an artist, and you want to explore that impulse and share that impulse. Yeah, no artist is like, I only want to do parts that make me feel happy. No, listen I mean, to every actor ever <laughs> in an interview, and when they say, yeah. "Why did you choose that role?" They're like, "Because it terrified me." Yeah, like they exactly. they literally say that. Now, there's it's to the point where it's like a script that they say, but there's something important in understanding that it's it's the journey, it's the adventure, it's the excess, it's the it's the learning, it's the challenging. 
I'm starting to see why acting and philosophy are so intertwined for you, right? Because there's yeah. this similar, like, uncomfortable dialectical moment of doubt and questioning that happens in philosophy, the Socratic, you know, moment of aporia, right? And that seems to be kind of a thing in acting, too, where you're, you inhabit Bro. a different persona and that makes you uncomfortable, takes you out of yourself in a way that helps you, you know, create something new, whether it be in thought ev- or whether it be in expression, artistic expression, yeah. You can't go into a moment when you're on stage or on set having an idea, a perfect idea of exactly how you're going to do the thing because you have another person or persons in front of you and you have Mm -hmm. a lighting rig and you've got a camera or you've got a stage and you've got a set. You've got these other factors that that will, in every new instant, dictate something new to you. And that's just like in real life. There's something about this. You've got to be able to improvise, you know? The actor might say the line differently than you anticipated. They might look in a different way. You might be trying to get their attention and then their eye gloss tears up because they felt something. You have to respond to that. You have to. You don't ignore that. One of the kind of like great, great acting maxims is invent nothing, deny nothing. The point being is you don't want to create or fabricate something, but you also don't want to deny anything that comes to you. So invent nothing and deny nothing. And every single moment that you're there, you're standing on the precipice of uncertainty while also then having the spine of the script and the spine of your character work and the spine of the direction and all of that stuff that's also grounding you, but it's both and. It's both having a spine of security and also standing and looking into the abyss of freedom. And you walk that line with every single instant when you're acting. And that is so important because that's what creates freshness and freedom. And that's what creates those moments of, as acting coaches like to talk about, like ping pong, the moment to moment ping pong where you're playing back and forth, you know? And yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly why acting and like the philosophical and theoretical stuff are lockstep for me because it, that's exactly what it is. You're chasing that feeling. Yeah. You're chasing that experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then here's the thing. You, you have to feel free to be able to chase that feeling. Mm. And if we live in a, in a yeah. system where the cultural elites stifle that, then what you're doing is you're essentially, you're killing what the artistic impulse has to be. And then you just end up with a type of propaganda. Now, I think that, that artists are always going to have to deal with this because we do it ourselves, right? Like, like there is a certain critique of sort of like woke censorship as much as it might be overblown, but there there is a certain critique of like woke censorship that that I think people latch onto. Now, I think a lot of it is is done in like reactionary terms, but I do think there's a sense in which if you as an artist are just simply serving um, a certain political ideology and you reduce your artistic expression to that, then yeah, then you're also kind of betraying that artistic impulse. However, that doesn't mean that the artistic impulse is totally deadened. It just means that the artist is always walking this precarious point of tension between those external influences that we internalize and then also the sort of like this the, the felt sense that I need to respond to the outs, the world outside of me. But, but what you have to do is you have to then allow for a space for the artists to work through that. And if it ends up in them like just being mouthpieces for a certain sort of like socio-political movement, that's not necessarily like a horrible thing. That's just like a let's analyze it and understand it and why is it being expressed in that way, you know? Um, 
so I so yeah I, I but I think the point is is you we we have to to not create a culture of fear that deadens the ability of the artist to be able to explore those things. Yeah, it does seem like the the commonality between um, this kind of method of cultural control and how that can sometimes work in sort of woke dogmatism is this at least part of it seems to be the, the centering of feelings as the site of of morality and justice or even just the site of value generally like what matters is feeling the right way right mm. um and one way to question that is to is to just bring up the fact that in artistic creation but also in really any other area of life sometimes feeling bad is the right thing to feel <laughs> exactly right? yeah absolutely and and i did see a lot of critiques actually of the actors in the whole stc saga um, that did try to say that they tried to reduce their expression to just simply like woke moralism, right? That it was like, oh, it's just there was there was like an, an apocryphal quote actually from Tim Minchin, who's also a board member of STC, that that he basically came out and kind of said, no, I didn't really say that. But for a couple days, it was kind of like, oh, Tim Minchin weighs in on the STC affair by basically castigating these actors for being trapped in a lefty bubble. And I think part of the reason that that people ran with it, whether or not he said it or not at a, at a concert, is still up for debate, I guess. But part of the reason that people latched onto it is that he has been critical in the past of sort of like young, woke artists for just towing the line of a certain kind of political correctness, right? And... Beyond that, I did see, even in that open letter from from Daniel Grimberg that I do quote in the article, he kind of made some kind of offhanded remark that was kind of like, oh, but that's not cultural appropriation, right? They're wearing the keffiyeh sort of thing. And you're kind of like, okay, I see what you're doing. You're trying to kind of like use the language of the culture war here and to to, to delegitimate them. So there as, is a as sense... If, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, just as if that's the problem with cultural appropriation. <laughs> Right, right, right. Oh, my God. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, I mean, there's so much bad faith in that whole fucking argument, right? Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. But, but like, but like, there is a sense in which it's kind of like, like, do I think that some artists espouse ideas and then express an artistic impulse? Simply because they're trying to score cultural points and, and quote-unquote virtue signal? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Of course, that's going to happen. Anybody who's trying to express anything is going to be influenced by outside forces, right? Um, but I just don't think that like even staying at that level of debate is really that important. The real issue is the power structures behind it, right? It's like, like really understanding, so where does the influence come from? That, that to me is what's really the most important thing. And that's why this article we really wanted to focus on, it's the donor power. That donor power, and I, and I kind of like, I thought it was a, a fun little turn of phrase that I coined. Like, you know how uh, central banks are oftentimes referred to as like lenders of last resort? I was like, mm-hmm. ah, these, these, these liberal cultural institutions, they see themselves as like protectors of last resort against right, yeah. anti-Semitism. And there is something, it's they look at the world and they're like, oh my God, the world is falling into decay, right? Like anti-Semitism is on the rise, hate crimes are on the rise, you know, damn kids are spending all their time on TikTok and, you know, they're they're not Getting upholding indoctrinated the... by China, yeah. 
yeah, that's right. They're all becoming. It's like it's like our talk last week uh, with Ayan Hirsi Ali, right? It's like the Muslims are being, you know, enticed by radical Islam, and the West is being infiltrated by communism and the Russo, the Russo, uh, Sino-Russia like um, kind of alignment with China and Russia coming in. It's like, oh no, you know, like there's all these pro-Putin apologists um, and woke ideology. You know, and it's like it's coming to get you. So you've got these liberal institutions that sort of take it upon themselves to be the protectors of last resort. They think that societies run amok, that that all of the little subjects, all of the old little the little democratic little liberal subjects that make up society, they're just not autonomous enough to be able to actually feel appropriately or think appropriately. So we have to step in and make sure that we regulate. Uh, as 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 protectors of last resort, because if we don't, then all hell's going to break loose. Yeah, th- this last section of the of the article where you you coined the protectors of last resort term, that's what made me think about the connection between my my shitty minute about Kissinger and the and the cynicism about human beings. Right, this idea that yes, I, very rich person in my sixties, I have my finger on the pulse. I know how the whole <laughs> world order works, right? These young people, they're very naive. They just do what the internet tells them. But I That's right. have read books. I know how the world works. And I'm going to make sure that I steer the wheel mm. of the ship of the international order using my vast wealth to make sure that it goes in the right direction. Because otherwise, it's pure chaos. If we democracy-led, if people had autonomous control over their own lives, everything would be complete going to shit, right? But the world that led to my vast wealth obviously is the good one. So I'm going to make sure things get steered in the right way, right? It's such an incredibly anti-democratic and really it's an anti-liberal mindset because it's anti-autonomy. It's anti-freedom, right? It's people who already have vast wealth, who are already on top of the hierarchical order of social power, get to steer the world in the way that it goes without any say of the people on the ground, right? Uh, mm. And to the idea of this like this level of like like cynicism dripping paternalism, right about yes. people and about people's power to um, direct their own lives, right? It's it's so awful, right? And it's at the root well, of all of these institutions and the way that every cultural and political institution seems to be governed. And and here's where there's like an interesting irony. So within these we'll call them like small L liberal institutions, right? They, and I say small L because in Australia, the liberal party is the conservative party. So um, just to not confuse, uh, especially if people read the article. Um, But so liberal in the, in the kind of conceptual sense, these institutions. So, and this is something I talk about in the first draft of the article um, in the last section they they literally explicitly think that they're standing up against hate. So Ian Narev is a guy who is on the board of STC, and he wrote an op-ed on the same day that STC issued their apology in which he praised and um, also was involved in the signing of this petition by like over 600 captains of industry, like really wealthy elites in Australia. They signed this petition against hate. But it was this really sort of like flimsy statement that doesn't like call out occupation or anything um, intentional. It just is like, we need to make sure we stand up for hate. But it does focus on anti-Semitism, which is interesting, right? Um, you know, some sort of like 482% supposed rise of anti-Semitism across Australia, right? And, and that's not to disregard that there aren't, there isn't some sort of emergence of an anti-Semitic 
tendency that is that is happening, right? Um, I'm not trying to disregard that at all, but I think it's just interesting that there was like a convenient, like what do they say in journalism? Oftentimes the stuff that you omit is actually almost more important, right? Um, mm-hmm. It was interesting, like what was included and what was actually like intentionally omitted. There was no mention of ethnic cleansing or occupation or anything like that in this this letter, right? But Narev kind of comes out and he's kind of like writing this think piece about like what is the role of, you know, business leaders? Um, should they speak out or should they not speak out? And he was just really, really proud of these, these 600 business sporting media leaders for signing this open letter against hate. And it pays lip service to a type of progressivism. Which is where there's this irony. So it's like you've got the, the, these, these liberal democratic institutions that are also trying to paint themselves as progressive. And what it makes you kind of realize that there is this paternalism in progressivism. And something that I learned from reading the work of Martin Konings, his book, um, The Emotional Logic of Capitalism, when he talks about the Walter Lippmann colloquial, uh, colloquium, which, which happened in like, God, the 30s, I want to say. Um, you can go back and, and kind of like do a little Google on it. But like the beginnings of Western progressivism always had a paternalism baked into them by viewing the demos, by viewing the people as unruly and in need of a sort of technocratic management. So there's like something that is part and parcel of the liberal institutional framework itself that that has always had a paternalism baked into it, despite the fact that liberal, the, the, the liberal ethos touts or at least draws a lineage to this idea that you know people are rational and autonomous and have the capacity to rule themselves and that you only cede kind of uh, you know control to a government because of a social contract, yada, yada, yada. But liberal institutions have never viewed themselves in that role. They've always viewed themselves as being like the drivers of managerialism for the furtherance of you know, before it was the raison d'etat, the reason of the state, the neoliberal state is for like managerial purposes to protect capital power. But there's always that kind of like paternalism baked into the institutions. Yeah, you know, it's, it's I mean, not to put it, to like reduce it to a, like a pithy phrase or whatever, but you want the liberal outcomes without the liberal processes. <laughs> and, yeah. and like, I mean, not to, again, like do my, like uh, my weekly blaming of empiricism utilitarianism for everything but like that's that's utilitarianism right it's the outcomes that matter not the processes right the side of of justice and morality is the outcomes not the processes and that's i mean that's just wrong like that's the that's the problem so the institutions they they want the outcomes of liberalism but without having to go through the processes which would require them to cede their power is that the idea but of course, liberalism is a process. That's the point, <laughs> yeah. right? Is that the is that the people get to uh, direct their own lives? They get to engage in an autonomous uh, self direction, and sometimes that's going to have bad outcomes. But that's okay, right? Um, and and yeah, this is just a complete turning of that whole principle on its head. And you're totally right. And Koenigs is totally right to point out that that the like the the um, the founding liberal theorists didn't see that through. Right. But the, in my mind, that is the germ of liberalism and it's the germ of the Enlightenment. Mm. Right. Um, is uh, freedom and autonomy and self-direction of, indi- of individuals and self-governance. Like that's 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 the point. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's totally a right to, to see this this tendency of 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 paternalistic moralism infecting 
not just government, but private institutions and cultural institutions as well, as being so parasitic on this idea. And that's why I think individuals sort of rebel against it. And you're seeing this rise in, in, in clearly understanding these institutions as being illegitimate by the people that got, that are governed by them, right? Governmental and cultural and private, right? And mm. so you're seeing the paternalistic moralism come out in the open in a much more obvious uh, way and in, in a much more like ugly mm-hmm. way, in like a, a scolding mm. way, because yes. you have to scold when you have nothing else. You have no reasons to present um, to an individual to conform, right? Yeah, the kids the kids have been naughty, so you got to smack their butts, you know, because you can't reason with the them, ki- and you can't. The king explain. ain't got to say he the king. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Do you think that this throws? Because the post-colonial argument against this would be like, yeah, that's because liberalism was always a handmaiden of imperial or colonial colonial impulse. Do you think that this creates a dark a dark shadow over liberalism to such an extent to delegitimize it per se or do you th- do you think that that it's just more about well you need to let the process of liberalism process um without having that kind of like predetermined telos, that end goal that you're rushing towards that then overcodes the process of liberalism, which then stifles what liberalism could produce in positive ways. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's obviously too big a question to, to talk about in like one sitting, right? But it's kind of colors a lot of the discussions we've had over the years, right? Which is like, who is liberalism? Which liberalism? Right? There isn't yeah. one monolithic liberalism, right? There's lots of contestation within liberalism. Uh, and you could you could create a, a linear history of it that makes it that way, and that's entirely true. And you can make another history where you include decolonial theory within liberalism. You include Marx mm, within mm. liberalism, which I would consider the case, right? Uh, and see all these different kinds of contestations within liberalism. Like if you don't have the Enlightenment, then you don't have decolonial theory, right? It uses a lot of the resources that's of right. the Enlightenment. Right, as does Foucault, as does Marx, as does you know postmodernism, everything. So, it, I think if you just see it as as a, a bunch of correctives to liberalism, and you know, it's corrective seems like it's minuscule, but it's not. You can have you know correctives that are that are you know I don't know huge or momentous or whatever that can happen too. Um, if you just see all these things in dialogue, I think is the important thing, rather than saying like, is this liberal? Is it not? Is you know. Um, is liberalism as an entire sort of uh, moral and political ideology now delegitimized or whatever? Like, I, in one way, maybe yeah. In one way, maybe no. Like, I don't think that's really the important thing. The, mm. the important thing is that is, is to sort of think about um, what are the guiding values and principles that seem to matter here, whether they're liberal or not, right? Or whether or not they've, you know, um, are are kind of liberal or like are, are sort of, you know, recognized as liberal, but actually aren't or whatever. I don't know that that really matters. It seems to matter really. It's just like, what are our important um, practical values and principles that are at play here? Uh, and that seems to be like, I think there are, you know, left liberals who are basically on the same side as, you know, anti-liberal socialists in a lot of cases. Not all of them necessarily, uh, but some, I think we can find common ground there. And um the kind of movement in political and cultural institutions that we're seeing here seems to me anti-liberal 
Um, but maybe it's not. Mm. Maybe it's fully within the sort of, you know, um, the liberal order as it functions in like real history or whatever. But either way, it's bad. <laughs> That's the point, <laughs> right? The point isn't whether or not it's liberal. Yeah. The point is that it's bad and that it stifles freedom and expression and it stifles self-governance and the people's ability to co-constitute their lives with one another. That's what matters. Mm. Yeah, definitely. What do you think? Um well, I do think – so remember just a couple of days ago I sent you that article or that little essay by Edward Said on uh-huh. – um, yeah. and I think that that – so this is just a little foreshadowing. I think in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about that. And in that essay, he kind of makes the point that so much of the late uh, – like – like 17th, 18th century imperialist justifications that they, um, how do I, how did he put it? It's, it's something about how like the anti-imperial sentiment was so much against these tendencies towards imperialism that are wrapped up in a lot of um, like liberal sentiment that there is that there is something that that recognizes how the kind of or maybe this was just my interpretation as i was reading it but there's so much like in like like a kantian or cartesian effort to to theorize the liberal subject that that in so doing was done to distinguish from the the barbarian or the uncivilized so that the the actual construction or constitution of subjectivity, the liberal subjectivity, was done as a way of like reinforcing not only to legitimate the imperial and colonial enterprises, but to kind of theorize what is unique about like the European spirit or what is unique about the kind of liberal subject, and it it only makes sense insofar as the liberal subject is not the ill the illiberal subject you know the barbarian the 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 eventually would be colonized right and so i do think that there is something in that that is that there is like a dialectical distancing a sort of like um Deleuze and Guattari have this this idea that Dan, Dan Barber talks about if people are interested in our series on Dan Barber of like reverse causality and it's this idea i think Karatani talks about it as well with like any new historical stage, so let's say you've got like, just in very crude terms, let's say you've got like a system of, uh, of, of like barter and exchange and, and community where there's reciprocity and then you've got like the state and the despot, you know, and a sovereign and then you've got like capitalism or whatever. But like that, that the despot only erects itself because it's warding off some of the excesses of the previous regime and that capitalism is in so many ways constituted by like warding off the threat the perpetual threat of like despotism right and so that there's like kind of this this dialectical but they would never to lose and go out we wouldn't talk about dialectical but there's like this reserve reverse causality that's like you're 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 constituting yourself as you're distancing yourself from the other thing um and so I think that there might be something to say about the constitution of liberalism, particularly liberal subjectivity per se, as like constituting itself like away from like oh no we're not we're not those people, you know we're we're not we're not like there's a, there's the illiberalism 
but liberalism has to be defined by like these principles and we have to make sure we ward off against those potential threats from the outside and so i do wonder if if that's also something similar that we're seeing with this like protectors of last resort tendency that it's like well we need to make sure that we're we're constantly reinforcing our, ourselves and our our capacities towards towards agency by warding off any sort of threats that might emerge yeah, I mean, and I think it's a good to, to bring this up in the context of the thing we're talking about with Israel, Palestine, and the Sydney Theater Company, right? Because the very point I think you're making astutely in the article is that the liberal protectors of last resort are actually paternalistic moralists, which is not liberal. <laughs> Paternalism and liberalism yeah. are kind of opposites in certain ways, right? At least in, in certain contexts. And the same thing is true of the early uh, liberal uh, founding liberal Europe, Western Europeans, right? Is that... In, in thinking that um, Western Europeans are sort of the the paradigm subject of, of like the civilized individual, right? And that and that you know Easterners or whatever are barbarians who don't meet the standards of like the liberal subject. I mean that's just again paternalistic moralism. It's wrong. It's incorrect, right? Yeah. Every individual um, seeks to uh, live a life according to values and principles that they recognize, right? Every individual. Um, universally is a liberal subject, if that's just what liberal subject means, right? Individuals trying to live together and realize the things that they value, right? And the the ability to govern their lives accordingly. Um, And so it just seems to me like, I mean, yeah, again, I don't want to like police what liberal means, but the problem there isn't sort of the conception of liberal subject necessarily, although, you know, there certainly are in the case of uh, like the early content stuff, um, sort of conceptions of the liberal subject that are entirely too narrow, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. which of course Kant, you know, then rails against colonialism in the opus postulum, right? So mm-hmm. there's even a recognition by Kant at the near the end of his life that that's not entirely the case. Um, and mm-hmm. that even those who, those subjects who were colonialized were done so in a very anti-liberal way, and that they, they should be able to give they should be given the right of self-governance, right? So even like the later Kant recognized that. Um, but yeah, again, that just seems to be a mistake on the empirics, right? Like, really, can you really believe that people who live differently than you are also trying to seek a life that's formally similar to yours in the sense of like aiming towards principles and values that matter to them? Right. And that mm. there's a possibility mm. of living together with people that are like that. Like, I guess this is the truth of pluralism. Right. And maybe the problem with early yeah. liberalism is that it was insufficiently pluralist and recognizing that there are lots of different ways to live a life of meaning and value. Right. That's great. And not yeah, just one and, way. And, well, and then even liberalism itself isn't just constituted in one sense, but that like this goes back to what you're thinking, like who's liberalism that like looking from a pluralistic lens gives you a deeper sense that if you're really going to value self-determination, then you need to kind of value the self-determination of other peoples, you know, even if that means that they live more communally based or that they use different, you know, uh, mechanisms of exchange than you do or something along those lines, you know, they believe in mysticism a little bit more than you do, you know, that, that you can allow for that and that that actually is a liberal orientation to figure out how does, how can, how can, a pluralistic framework allow for those things to kind of inform your own perspective as well. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a push and pull there between like a kind of epistemological humility, like not thinking the, the things that you value and that matter to you are the only things that could matter or could be valued by anybody, while also acknowledging that a life 
of pursuing value and meaning is the thing that matters. That's right. Like yeah, a, yeah. That's a really tough thing to to like a, like a boundary to police because it involves a kind of epistemological humility. You don't think of your own life as the only way of, of life that matter that could that could have meaning, but also recognizing that there are some lives that have. Um, that don't have meaning. <laughs> like the individual who pursues a life of like making the world safe for white children and white women or whatever isn't a life of meaning. Um, <laughs> that's a disastrously lived life, right? Yeah. Um, but there are plenty of other types of uh, of lives you can live, ones that I don't, I couldn't imagine myself occupying, uh, at least as I, as I currently understand them, but then I can still recognize them as being lives of value and meaning, right? It's a it's a tough thing to to pursue, but that really is like the it seems to be the like the balancing act that we have to live if we're going to be sufficiently pluralist, um, while also seeking to have a kind of a kind of order um, in life amongst other people, like a way of living together. That's all I mean by order. It's like a way of living together where we can like understand each other as uh, as equal co-constitutors of our lives. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited um, to read that side paper. That'll be that'll be a fun one. I also, I really, yeah. I'm just going to say this now in the podcast so that I don't forget. I really want to read with you the essay by Tommy Shelby. Do you know who he is? Tommy Shelby isn't that isn't Tommy Shelby from uh, Oh God that TV show? Yeah, I mean not that Tommy Shelby from Peaky Blinders. <laughs> yeah, Peaky Blinders isn't that Tommy Shelby? Yeah. That is Tommy Shelby. I'm thinking the philosopher Tommy Shelby. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know the philosopher Tommy Shelby. I, yeah. I, I teach his paper on racism in my contemporary moral problems class, and I make that same joke about Peaky Blender, so it's, it's appropriate to make it. Okay. Uh, but okay. he, has a, he has another paper called Justice, Deviance, and the Dark Ghetto, um, which I, I have never taught it because I think it's a little too maybe high-minded or whatever the term is um, for like an introductory class. But it's a really good paper on uh, conceptions of justice coming from the perspective of oppressed um, African Americans in, in the U.S. specifically, um, I kind of it kind of circles around a lot of these these same things that we're talking about, especially around how oppressed persons think about political institutions as being illegitimate. Um, Ooh, yeah, yeah. I think it'd be a, a really good. We could probably like read the the Said paper and then read the the Tommy Shelby paper afterwards. I think that'd be a nice little. Um, like case of different perspectives of from yeah, oppressed part one and part communities. two. Yeah. Cool. Let's do it. Let's do it. Do it. They, that's, that's not next week though. Right. That's in two weeks, three weeks. Um, well, are we still going to read the, the, the Livingston, uh, chapter? Yeah. So we'll, so we'll read Paul. So I guess Paul Livingston chapter will be like an addendum to this episode. And then we'll do the Saeed and the Shelby one after that. Yeah. That sounds good. Okay, cool. That works for me. Well, sick. Um, so yeah, so we'll we'll go ahead and post the links to both articles, the one that was published in Jacobin, and then um, to the kind of first draft down below in the show notes, so you can go check those out and get ready, because um, we'll also we'll talk a little bit more next week about the Saeed paper and the um, Tommy Shelby paper next week. But next week, we're going to read a chapter from Paul Livingston's book, The Politics of Logic, which Troy has been wanting to read for a very long time, which I have, yeah. has been very, in- yeah, which has been very influential to me because I spent a week with Paul in Italy like four years ago, um, and it was the same event where I met Sergei Prozorov, actually, 
Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, the Prozorov-Livingston connection, with that also is mediated by Agamben and Graham Priest, who was kind of the outlier there. But um, <laughs> it was a great, a great week. Uh, one of my one of my favorite weeks of my life, I think, actually. Um, literally spent like ten days in Italy, reading philosophy and drinking wine and eating pizza and hanging out with um, some really awesome people. It was brilliant. Which again. That's why we just need community, man. We need philosophical community. When are we going to start our own little, our own little, uh, you know, little little philosophy community in uh, on the coast in Italy? Let's do it. Let's in a couple years, okay, dude. That's the life, man. That is absolutely the life. I also want to add <laughs> that uh, the Prozorov Livingston connection is my favorite uh, sixty or seventies Eastern European uh, progressive rock band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure I saw them uh, open yeah. for Can. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So yeah. So um, those will be some foreshadowing for for what we're gonna we're gonna get up to. But yeah, we'll go ahead and wrap up the main segment there and get into the sticky leaves. Yep. Yep. So the sticky leaves segment, as you all know, is the part of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's bringing us meaning in a potentially but hopefully not meaningless world. So Austin, you gave us a bit of a, a preview earlier, but what's your sticky leaves for this week? Christmas, man. I um. I love Christmas. I do. I love it, and I miss it. And what I mean by that is that I have not felt the Christmas spirit really in like five years because I've been in Australia for five years. Mm-hmm. And as for people who don't know, we live on a round globe that spins in weird ways. And so because of that, the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere don't experience seasons at the same time. They're opposite, in fact. So Christmas here is in the middle of the goddamn summer. Um, and it's so hard when it's like 30 plus degrees Celsius, which is like 90 plus Fahrenheit and 80% humidity. It's so hard to like feel the snowy Christmas season. And here's the interesting thing. Is it not also entirely unfair that the majority of Christmas imagery is all like snowy? Cause then I feel shitty. Like like a lot of people live on the southern hemisphere of the world, <laughs> and for them, they just they don't they look at it and they're like, oh yeah, that's cr-. but they must feel like so disconnected from Christmas. Now, granted, in Australia, their Santas have board shorts and Hawaiian shirts and whatever. It's cute, I get it. And it's like surfing Santas. I, I'm I wonder what it's like in like Argentina. Like their representations of Santa are probably similarly geared towards warm summer weather, right? But like. The, the 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 true representation of Santa that is fed to us the majority of the time is the snowy Santa, right? And so, as somebody yeah. who grew up in the northern hemisphere, like even though I grew up in Southern California, it gets a little colder, right? Like you know, it gets into like the fifties Fahrenheit during the winter, fifties, sixties. Now, sometimes you do get that heat wave and it's seventy eight degrees on Christmas Day and you go surfing or something like that, and that's fun. But those were kind of the outlier days. Like normally around December it starts to get cold. It becomes hot chocolate weather and the lights start going up in Southern California everywhere because, you know, especially in like middle class neighborhoods, what do middle class families like what do middle class dads like more than anything? Winning a Christmas decorating competition, you know? So <laughs> So I will never I be that s- Christmas dad. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I used to spend, you know, like we would go to these neighborhoods and they'd there would be many of them, multiple versions of Candy Cane Lane. There's like the Candy Cane Lane in this town and the Candy Cane Lane in that town where like all the houses are fully decorated. You go to, um, you know, the, the coffee shops or the restaurants and people have their trees all up in their wreaths and stuff like that. And there's just like a really rich Christmas spirit. The Christmas music is blasting and stuff like that. Um, and then I moved to the UK. And then in the UK, they, they do Christmas big too because then they get a white Christmas, you know? And then I lived in Ireland too. And again, they have a white Christmas. And um, and it's not as like white as like, like, I don't know, fucking Minnesota. They really have a white Christmas. But, you know, at least you get like a little snow flurry or you definitely get the cold. And um, there's just something about having a red nose and having a cup of joe or a cup of cocoa in your hand as you're walking down the street with your gloves or something like that that is just so part of the Christmas experience that I just love. I love it. And I do miss it a little bit. And now, I was t- as I was telling you before we started recording, it's actually been a little bit cold and rainy here the last few days in Sydney. So I have actually felt a little bit more of the Christmas spirit, as silly as that sounds. And I know that this is totally some sort of weird ideological fantasy that I am just like projecting onto the world. But I... <laughs> One, I miss it, but two, more than more than anything, I, I do love it. And I know, I know the kind of like critical, you know, Christmas is just consumerism. Yada, I, I get it. And I know all of that. But there's also something just beautiful about like traditions and people coming together and putting up lights. And like one of the things I loved about the UK was, and, and in Europe, they have those Christmas markets. Do you remember the Christmas market when you were in the UK, dude? I don't remember that, no. So in pretty much every city like every biggish city across the uk they do these little christmas markets you know glasgow edinburgh has one i'm sure aberdeen would have had one london definitely has multiples of them manchester would have them and they're these markets that run for like the entire month of december and you go and and some of them are bigger than others so like the bigger ones will have like little ferris wheels or whatever for the kids and stuff like that Um, And then for the adults, they have like the mulled wine and then like the bar section. And then they have just all kinds of like little trinkets that you can buy and little like toys and little like, you know, meats and cheeses and pastries and whatever else that you can, you walk around and it's at night and it's cold and you got your hot cocoa. And it's, it's just like a little place to bring the community together. And of course, it's all based around consumerism. We get that. I understand that. That's not the point. The point is, is that <laughs> there's just something nice about having ritual ritual and community and like these spaces where people can come together. And I love that kind of stuff. And to me, Christmas, and here's the other thing. My mom's a designer. And one of my mom's first companies that she ran was a Christmas decorating company. And so, like, for me as a little boy, you know, with my single mom, uh, one of the things that we had was I would go to work with her and she would be decorating, like, you know, hotels or stores or, like, you know, like, wealthy people's homes or something like that with these, like, extravagant Christmas displays. And there was just something about being part of that, the Christmas decorating part. And then I bet you can't even imagine, like... Not only our apartments, but then once we ended up di- moving into a house and then all my mom's other places where she's ever lived, you should see them. The the amount of work that she puts into decorating them for all of the holidays with Christmas being the sort of like, you know, denouement of all of it, right? Um, but like to me, I just, I love that. I do. I love it. I love the Christmas spirit. I love Christmas decorations. I love Christmas music. Uh, and last night we watched Violent Night. Have you seen Violent Night, the David Harbour film? Yeah, I watched that last year. Yeah, it came out last year. Like, is it a good movie? No, it's fine. No. It's fine. 
But it was it's all fine. Right. Yeah, it's it was fun. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. But we had fun, and we started the movie off with just Sean and I, and then her parents came home from dinner, and so they joined us for like the last half of it, right when it's just like chaos and murder and heads exploding, <laughs> and we just. We just like laughed and talked shit about the movie, but it still had like a Christmas vibe to it, and it was fun. That to me is what Christmas is about, and so I love, I love that stuff. Yeah, it makes me think. You know, I obviously grew up in Southern California, and I spent some time internationally. But my 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 sense of what Christmas season is is completely constituted by like Southern California style, and so I live in a place where it's cold in the winter now, and. I really appreciate the Christmas season, I think, more than I did before. And so I was wondering, like, what is it that I'm appreciating about this? And so, like, the optimist in me is like with with you, right? Where it's like, because it's cold um, and because there's more time off, at least for some industries, and certainly working in academia, it's more time off, right? You get to spend more time inside and with people because you have time and you do community-based and you have things. People. And that's, yeah, that's what matters. Like, that's it, like, yeah. And people are around you because they're they're visiting you and they're off work and shit like that. Exactly. And that's what I love. I mean, I have a, a great family that I love. And so spending time um, with them and being off work is like the best part of that's how all life should be. Right. But then there's the pessimist side of me or maybe the cynical mm-hmm. side of me. And the cynical side of me says, well, you know, what actually changes most isn't all those you know things about community and family and spending time with one another and watching movies and all that. And having different music and different genres of movies and whatever. Actually, it's the fact that now it's appropriate to make hot chocolate and put Baileys in it. And that's <laughs> what's really special about the Christmas season. And so <laughs> maybe it's just that Day cultural <laughs> allowance, right? Um, that's. But actually, it's all those things. It's all those things that are great. I will say one of the things I love about Australian the Australian holiday season... Is from about mid-December to the end of January, the whole country shuts down. Like, like <laughs> no, no, no work gets done. There's like zero pressure for meeting deadlines. I remember last year; it was the first time that I really felt it so like stridently, and it was basically mid-January. So my my work was supposed to start back up like the second week of January, and I remember sending off emails, and I just get constant like automatic replies that's like i'm away till the end of january or we're away we're closed until feb and i remember my boss and i talking and we were kind of like we might as well just like kind of you know just do some like organizing stuff and some planning for the year but like none of our clients are actually getting back to us about like pushing any (laughs) of our projects forward until feb so like it was so chill it was so chill and i remember people i've talked with they're kind of like yeah that's kind of how things work like you know, pretty much end of December through middle of January is kind of normal. But then the last few years, it seems to have extended a bit to like middle of December to end of January, where it's just a shutdown. And that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot on the podcast about how, you know, in the world where we're capitalists all day, so we can be socialists at night or on the weekends, mm. right? And nothing makes that more apparent, I think, than the Christmas season. And that's not to say that everybody loves the Christmas season. I mean, lots of people mm. don't want to go see their families because they have lots of you know, trauma involved with that. And and there's lots of, you know, like uh, various psychological disorders and whatnot that are associated with like not going to work yeah. or, you know, not having stuff to do. So there's lots of issues there. It's not, you know, it's not pure um, euphoria all the time. But there is something beautiful about just not having to focus on work and being 
uh, together with the people that you love and um, engaging in activities inside that are about, you know, conversation and, and doing things together because you can't really go outside. It's too cold. Um, that's beautiful. And I love that. Okay. So I appreciate you you celebrating that fact. It's not popular to say you love Christmas season, right? No, especially if you're like you're you're like a on radical, the left dude. or yeah, yeah. You're not supposed to like Christmas because it's just you know you're being brain manipulated by the Coca Cola Santa or something like that. It's our it's our most reactionary opinion here on Owls at Dawn. <laughs> Christmas season is good. Uh, Foucault has this great quote about uh, I, it's one of the I think it's like one of the forewords of one of the editions of of uh, of Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus where he says that like essentially Anti-Oedipus is a work of ethics and that what it's about is it's about like finding and then ferreting out the fascism that is within all of us within like its little mm. micro instance or whatever and maybe this is this is like the point where i'm still not um uh, i'm still not you know ferreting out the little bit of reactionary sentiment within me is my my love of christmas so now the the, the real fascists are the real fascists are the libs who hate christmas <laughs> Uh, so that's my sticky leaves. So uh, hope y'all out there are having a good holiday season, Christmas, whatever it is that you celebrate, and New Year. Um, and if you're not, uh, please know that we're here to hopefully inject a little bit of something um, within within um, your lives. And reach out to us if you want and say what up and we can have a chat. You can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Send us your sticky leaves. Um, you know, send us your thoughts on uh, any of our episode discussion points, anything like that. And um, yeah, oh, and please, if you can too, uh, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash owls at dawn. I heard, um, or, um, I think I was listening to Navara Media. They have a podcast and they have fucking Zizek at the beginning of their podcast, shilling for them, saying, pay Navarro <laughs> Media. What the fuck, man? Like, Who can we get? That, that, well, that, that sounds, it just feels so manipulative, right? Like, come on. That's just not fair. Like, it's like whenever I listen to The Dig, I love The Dig podcast. It's, it's, really, it's really insightful. But like, their, their appeal, their pleas for money at the beginning, they always make me feel so icky because I'm like, man, you don't want to like, do it but like you got to do it because you got to ask because you need to like fucking you know like eat and shit and money's nice for that and but it always makes me feel so icky when i hear when i hear that stuff but then at the same time i'm also jealous so it's like maybe that's also me being a reactionary what do you think (laughs) (laughs) yeah no comment Um, but if you see it in the goodness of your heart during the holiday season to throw us some extra pennies, just know that it would really go a long way for us. So please support us at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, but anyway, for real, we love y'all. And if you can't support us, you know, actually what you could do, um, is if you can go to like Apple and leave us a review and five stars or on Spotify and do that, that's actually fucking awesome as well. So we can get the word out. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it, dude. I think we're pretty much done unless there's anything that I forgot to say. Uh, just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Dasta Dania, Amerikanski. Yeah.